Welcome to the Dev Ready Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Philip Guichard. He is from D2 Design and Development. Philip, thanks for joining us. Welcome, Philip. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, that's no, really good to come on and um, good to meet you a couple of weeks back and get a bit of an insight of what you're up to. So I'd love to share that with the, the audience today a little bit. And it's all about not just software products today, it's about physical products. So, Philippe, you've been involved in um, product design from a physical perspective, not just uh, a software side at all. Uh, so today is more for the, the audience that's listening in around maybe IoT devices or some sort of physical wearable that you might want to be designing or thinking about. And uh, we thought Philippe could share some of his experience and help you guys out with the process. So, Philippe, first question um, is all about you. Uh, how did you get involved in this area? Where did it all start? Uh, what drove you into product design? Yeah, that's very interesting. So how far back shall I go? Up to uh, you. <laughs> as far as the story well, starts. <laughs> possibly. I think the, the first trigger for me is when I was a kid. Uh, okay. I, I used to uh, uh, read those comics from uh, you know, the Donald Duck and everything. And they have one character called Garo Gillus, I guess. He's a kind of inventor, crazy character that, you know, transform an idea into a physical thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And of course, you know, in that in that context, it's kind of magical. And the machine do your pancakes and your coffee in the morning and then make your bed. Like it's it's really all over the place. But um, I thought that was really a cool idea that you can take an idea and then work at some kind of mechanism or something. And then at the end, you have a product that does a service to you. So I thought, well, that's really that's really cool. I think that that was one of the first trigger. The, the second trigger um, is linked to um, a test I did when I was sixteen. Um, I, I wasn't a very good student. I was an okay student. I was more sitting at the back of the classroom and disrupting a bit the the, uh, the you know throwing the, paper the, across the room. <laughs> yeah, and the lessons and everything. And, and fair to say, I was a bit disengaged, which which is often the case of the creative and entrepreneur people <clears throat> they they tend to be at the at the back of the classroom <clears throat> and uh and you know my parents had me take a, a psycho you know test of some of some form or like a, a career test and, and the test came back uh and the, the lady who gave me the, the test said oh, okay um i had a very unusual profile and she couldn't make it any any sense of it so she thought oh that guy is dumb and she said, well, there's no way you, you can have your baccalaureate, forget about universities and further study. You're not, you know, wired for that. Best you can do is work with your, with your hands, be a cabinet maker. If you're on the top of your game, maybe you can make a guitar or violin. But that's that's the best you can do in this life. And I'm like, oh, OK, that's very interesting. But I didn't feel this way. I didn't feel dumb. I feel disengaged and bored, yes, but not dumb. And... Um, that was interesting because my profile showed that I have actually different center of interest. So people who were with me, they had two very high inter interests in math and physics, and that was your path. And I had nearly the same, but I have also very high spikes in art and grammar and logic and different different areas that didn't make any sense to that lady. That was important because a couple of uh, years later, um, I met an industrial designer at a party at my I was about to say house, but that was more of a student room, like a, a tiny thing. And um, and that guy invited me over. Uh, he was the CEO of a small industrial design studio. And 
and I was amazed by that. Like, uh, you know, you, it's like combining creativity and science and psychology and, you know, uh, culture. Everything in one box, isn't it? Exactly. It's like, yes. and I was fascinated. It's like, wow, you can do that and you can get paid. Like, it's a job. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is fantastic. And I'm, <clears throat> the first thing I did when I came back from visiting that, um, that studio is um, dig out that test. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that the test and what was required in design was like nearly a perfect match. And I thought, well, that's probably what I, I want and need to do. So long story short, I finished my mechanical engineer degree and um, I had a, another degree on top of that in industrial design. Came back to France at the age of 22, 23, opened my first um, design uh, studio. Brilliant. So you started early. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. Very well, interesting story. Yeah, definitely. Um, I found it, I find it fascinating, um, the psych tests that they do to teenagers and what they do. Mm. I think mine came back as work outdoors, um, and I don't do that at all. But I found it interesting. But I do like nature, so it's interesting when you think, when you think to, to that. But when they just throw a test at you and put you in a box, it's, uh, yeah, it can be a bit um, disconnected if people don't understand how to interpret those tests and different ways to think about them. So I think you, you dug into that yourself, which is good. Yeah, that was quite the experience. Yeah. So starting at 22, 23, what was that like? <laughs> Anthony and I have a little bit of a similar story to you, but we won't go there yet. But yeah, yeah. what was well, that like? It's like the, the story of the young, naive entrepreneur that think I'm going to do something and just give yes. it a go. And yeah. and I seriously, I was extremely naive in terms of business and everything, but also I had a couple of insights. The first thing I did is... Um, to kind of uh, um, start a company with a, a few stakeholders and shareholders, and they were like um, more mature people. They were, you know, around their forties and something. And I have a bit of a experience. I had a kind of a advisory board of five different entrepreneurs that were um, giving me a bit of a distance and advice. That was really good. The other thing I realized I didn't know how to sell, and I hired a sales coach just to try to pitch and everything and then after that that just went out there like i was super naive i was knocking on doors and say okay guys i'm a designer yeah. you know i have this mechanical engineer background so i understand things that other don't usually and 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 i can make it work and that's how i got my first job mm-hmm. um so i got my first job <laughs> that was very funny because i i started with like zero money like seriously um uh, so my first job, I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, in order to confirm the, the job, I need a deposit from you. So uh, you need to pay 50% up front and everything. And it's not that I needed a deposit. I, didn't, I had zero money. I had zero, zero money in the bank, yeah. <laughs> you know, so with the deposit, I went to buy markers and, you know, papers and crayons and stuff like that. And, and I did the sketches and presented the sketch. And I said, well, now that I did the sketch, I can do the CAD, but you need to pay up front. And that allowed me to rent CAD station because I didn't have any to rent cat station at night at other engineers that I knew and I could do the work. And so that's how it started, you know, a bit of bits and pieces and uh, and a bit of grit and a bit of passion and, you know, all those stuff that you do with a lot of naivete also when you're when you're in your 20s. Brilliant. I'll tell you a bit about our story. I don't think we shared it on the podcast. Similar. We started Arion, which is the core business. Um, when we were 22, I was 22, 23. Anthony, what were you, 22? 23. Younger than you. Younger than me. Yeah, so maybe 23, 24, whatever it was. Right. I don't even remember. 22. 15, 15 years ago. Yeah, so 22, 23. Um, uh, same thing. 
we, <laughs> we we weren't as smart as you, though. We didn't get any advisors. We just tried to do it on our own for a long, long period of time. So we were at uni together um, at La Trobe in Bandura, Melbourne. Um, yeah. We we were mates. Oh, we weren't as close. I think it was another party that connected us who was one of our founders at the time, and he yeah. left. We moved him on probably two years later. Not even. Um, that was a challenge in itself, but that was a, a more of a relationship problem than anything. Um but yeah, similar thing. We started, we knocked on doors that we knew, though. We got access into some educational technology simulation tools that we started building for a Victorian Space Science Education Centre. Anthony did a, um, uh, what was did it, a summer internship, internship with, with them, them, and they needed developing help. Developing a product. So, so that can be our first client. And Latrobe was one of our first clients building some tech for, so that's yeah, how we started. Naive, no idea what we're doing, no money. We brought our own little computers. Latrobe were nice enough to give us a little office in the back of nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. So we started working out of there. So everyone brought their own box, no money in the bank. Same story. <laughs> we didn't, yeah, we knew we couldn't sell, but we... Um, I think we built a few opportunities off relationships and it sort of went through mm. forward from there. Um, so, yeah, similar but slightly different. No advisors, though. That was probably one area mm. which could have saved us five years. <laughs> well, one of my advisors, I had to, let's say, push him out after a couple of years. Um, yep. There were some financial things that were not quite right. And he was okay. the CEO, in, like, technically, he was the CEO of the company. Yes. Uh, even though he had small shares, but... Um, yeah, I discovered a number of irregularities and I had to buy him out. So, you know, those are stories like, you know, the founder story. There's always one of those happening. Yeah, we, so we exactly. Had a lot, of, a, a lot of different versions of that. Sorry, that was, yeah. Back in the day, he didn't fit the mold. He wanted to mm -hmm. be the CEO of a business and do nothing. <laughs> that was the reality. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it just didn't really work that way when you're uh, three guys trying to get something started. Yeah. So, yeah. So everyone has those stories, though. It's all about yeah. people, relationships, who you're working with. Yeah. So you're 22, 23, mm. got your first client, paid up front yeah. to help you get moving. Mm. Um, yeah. Where Where did that take you? Obviously, you're in Australia now, so it's obviously taking you to another part of the world. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I had my business for over eight years. I grew to about um, six people and a couple of uh, freelancers that were not really working full-time but close. So that wasn't a very big business, but that was a decent business. And we were just doing product design. Got so it. there were no graphic design and stuff like that. So that was reasonably okay for just a unique product design company. Um, well, the story was um, I got lucky and also I knew that I had skills that were a bit unique, um, meaning that I, um, I, I was an industrial designer with a mechanical engineer background. So the, the way it translated is that pretty much every sketch or every CAD thing I did, I could deliver from a mass manufacturing perspective. Mm -hmm. And if I couldn't, I was, you know, talking to engineers or the guys on the floor, and then we were going to figure something out. And, and I think that gave me a very solid reputation um, uh, in, in my region because, um, yeah, I was... I was in papers with like the biggest studio of the region, like there were two huge studios in my region. And, and like when I was 24, something like this, they were a paper, there were like the three photos of the, the designers. And I was one of them. I like feel felt a bit like a fraud or something, but, um, <laughs> but the point is, you know, I was designing a bike. I was 24 or something, which is, you know, insane when you think about it. 
Um, I designed machines and products, like very heavy products and stuff like that, and, and consumer goods. And so I, I think I got lucky, but also I could benefit from this mixed uh, experience of uh, being a, I, w I won't say I'm a very good mechanical engineer, but I have a sense, I, like I cover some of their ground and I, I, at least I can talk to them and I, and I kind mm. of like it. I like to make sure that I can deliver from the mass manufacturing perspective. And so that gave me an edge from day one. And after that, I, <clears throat> I also started to, um, because I was working a lot with founders and CEO and entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, delivering the product is one thing, it's great, um, but it's, it's not enough. And I started to understand that from the CEO perspective, the founder perspective, it's about growing the business. So uh, you need more than a product. You need good marketing and a good, good business modeling. So I started to study marketing. I started to look at the finance aspect and probably also a bit the value proposition of the design that I was um, putting out. And, uh, and I started to build a, a framework and I've been building that framework, which is like behind me now. And, uh, there are kind of three legs to it to simplify it at the, the high level, the details methodology is a bit more complex, but that's all you need to know. There are kind of three legs to the, the stool. And if you miss one of the legs, the stool is quite unstable and you take a lot of risks. So that's, that's, that's kind of the trajectory. And on a personal level, I, um, um, I had to close my business after some unfortunate events with a client and, you know, it's part of the, the business stories. And, um, after that, I decided that I wanted to leave France to be an entrepreneur elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and I was ready to move to Canada, strangely enough. And I did all the paperwork and I was ready to leave and everything. And then I met my wife <laughs> and uh, she's Australian. So this is the globe and I had the choice and I was supposed to go up there and I went down here oh. just on the opposite side. Uh, and, uh, and I've been in Melbourne for the last 11 years. And starting the studio, I can't remember, probably like eight years ago, something now. A brilliant story, interesting background, and it's amazing how things can change the, the, the flip of um, meeting someone that you fall in love with, come to Australia, yeah. get married, and it probably changes your landscape completely. In Canada, completely. some French-speaking areas, which might have been easier for you. Uh, so, yeah. I, I always yeah. find that super funny. You know, you, there's what you plan and what the universe gives you. <laughs> It's always very different. They rarely, they rarely align. <laughs> yeah, you're up for a good laugh, so that's very good. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about, obviously, for our listeners, it's really good background. Thank you for sharing. I think it's important for people to understand your background, your history, and how you got to where you, you are today. Um, DT Design, focusing on designing products that actually are viable, that actually, that you can actually take to market, build a business around. Um, what is good product design in your mind? Oh, wow. Uh, super deep question. Um, <clears throat> to, to some extent, I, I think for me, the, the, the notion of a good design is when the design is invisible. Uh, and invisible, I don't mean that uh, you don't see it, but when you experience something, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of, it's like it's a flow, it's natural and everything. Mm -hmm. and, and you experience bad design every day, by the way, because there are frictions. There are frictions, frustrations. There are things that are not working well. There are like you, you have to adapt to your surroundings. And by the way, we do that all the time. Like um, one of the examples I do share in my keynotes or, or with my students is um, you're so used to the tap, you know, getting the hot water and the cold water. Or something, you don't even question that it's a horrible 
concept today. Like it's completely stupid. And, and and if you you know look back in time, you know of course when they started to put water in the houses, you need something that was reasonably cheap and everything. So you have a screw on the pipe, and and you know that's that's a tap today. And then we've been designing and making that looking good and nice shapes and everything. But the essence is the same. Like it's you know, and when you think about you know water consumptions and ergonomics and behavior and everything today is completely stupid. Like it doesn't make any sense to have that technology. We shouldn't have something that is so much better. And uh, that's the type of thing I like to look at. And that's, you know, I like to look at the frustration and, and the thing that you don't really see. And when you put the new product out there, you're like, oh yeah, yeah. That's, you know, it feels more natural. The, the old tap, the, there's obviously, it's been some evolutions with the, um, but I think that's more for water water consumption when you go into like the um, mm. the public bathrooms and you put your hand in front of the sensor and that is horrible experience <laughs> yeah. i find it terrible like you put your hands in front of it and um it doesn't mm -hmm. come out you, you move your exactly. hands around trying to get the sensor to actually engage so the yeah. experience is terrible i'd rather just put the screw back on and uh, be much easier for yeah. everyone <laughs> I when, agree. I saw, when i was at coles they had the tap where your leg was so you'd push up against the uh, handle and yeah. you turn the tap on so you didn't have to touch it with your hands. Yeah. Just stay clean and your hands stay clean. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. That's, that's yeah, that could be more like a better experience. Sometimes it's, it's borderline funny. Yeah. Uh, I went to an airport, I don't know, when I was traveling and you had the sub dispenser that is uh, a sensor one. Yes. So if you put yes. your hand, nothing happened. When you leave your hands, the sensor is working and then the soap is dripping. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Yeah. And you have this mountain of soap on the, you know, on the, on the side of the sink. And it, like, it's, yeah. I don't know, it wasted money. It's, I don't, I don't get it. It's yeah, we can do better. Definitely. Yeah. But in terms of um, someone that's looking, it's got a concept because it's all about idea, right? And that's where yeah. we sort of start from a, a software perspective. It's conceptual. So we have a concept, we want to achieve X, um, yeah. and then how do we design something that's going to get us there? Um, from your perspective, where do people start when they think physical product? Because there's a lot more pieces to the puzzle. Um, it's not just build the technology component, features, yeah. functions. There's obviously a design UX experience, but now it's mm. more, we have to be able to actually produce this. We can design yeah. something, but if it costs us $10,000 to produce a product that we can sell for a thousand, we've got a problem. So there's a lot more components to it um, and scale doesn't help when the cost is more than what you can sell it for. Whereas in software, scale can sort of get you back some revenue. So it's a slightly different game that you're playing. So how does that dynamic come together and what would you advise people to, when they start thinking about physical products? How yeah. might they begin the, the thought yeah, so that that's I mean we could spend three hours just on that. <laughs> it's uh, that's that's the really the meat of the the thing. But uh, in essence, very often people have an idea, and I want to distinguish the idea from the concept. So an idea is actually already an embodiment of a concept, and some people are not even aware of the concept where the idea came from. So that's very, very interesting. So it's a bit, you know, up there, but you know, that's a distinction that is worth pointing um, at. So they, they have an idea, let's say um, we were talking about a soap dispenser. So they have an idea of a soap dispenser that have a specific handle that allows you to get the soap. Uh, very often they will go to uh, either a product development agency or try to do that on their own, but like 
the idea is that they will build a prototype and build do build some physicality to it. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't have the experience, then you face, okay, how do we manufacture that thing? And if you don't know all the technology and everything, it becomes like a very heavy burden and everything. But the, the what, what is interesting is that very often, and that happens very often with, I would say, inventors and first-time entrepreneurs, they are really, really product-focused. Mm -hmm. And they have this idea, they have, they're kind of locked some in some ways in the idea. And then they keep pushing and thinking that if they get the product right, that's going to work. And that's one of the reasons why the hardware adventures are that there's a tenfold in failures versus any other uh, ventures. Uh, it's, it's not because it's harder. I mean, hardware is a bit harder. That's true. But pretty much very often, all the entrepreneurs being more like technicians, I would say, like technical oriented, they all make the same mistakes. And, and so the two mistakes that I made at the very early stages are lack of market fees and disregarding, disregarding the business model. So if I go back to this idea of soap dispenser, so you have an idea of a soap dispenser with a specific handle. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. The S and the concept of that is a, dis a soap dispenser. And a soap dispenser could be this, but it could be with a sensor. It could be with a different handle. It could be upside down. It could be with pressure. It could be, um, I don't know, like even on the tap itself, like there are so, so many options. So all those options are different ideas of the same concept. Mm -hmm. So th that's why when you have an idea, it's good to find an expression and which means usually you can do some kind of CAD rendering or give, give it a form and a shape. And then you need to con confront that with the market as soon as possible. And that's, that's my highest recommendation. Start talking to your market, see if they have the same problem, see if they see the solution as a good solution. And then you work your way up on product development and, you know, business modeling after that. But as soon as you have something, ask the marketplace mm -hmm. and then come back and be able to be flexible. Like, um, if the market says no, it doesn't mean that the concept is bad. I mean, we need sub dispensers and there are quite a few out there. So you may have to come back to the drawing board or the imagination board and, uh, and think, okay, that handle didn't work. My idea was a whatever handle that didn't work, but maybe there's something else. And, and if you listen to the market, they could give you some kind of insight or you could look at their behaviors or stuff like that. And then you can come back with idea number two based on the same concept. I think it's, it's sound advice because I think I agree that everyone we sort of jump into meeting designing this software product, um, they sink their teeth into a, a concept and their, their concept is to solve a problem and here's the idea. Um, and that's the idea they sort of may stick to <laughs> um, and not willing to sort of tweak and budge. And we've yeah. seen people spend years building a solution, then put it out mm -hmm. to the marketplace and no one buys. Well, no one is engaged and they don't ask the question why, because they probably didn't ask any questions at the beginning. <laughs> that's generally why. Yeah. yeah so wrong approach, mm -hmm. wrong wording or market recommendation the way it's worded or presented yeah lots of different things oh there's so many layers on on that and in hardware that's that's really that breaks my heart like i can't give name and i don't want to but i've met a few entrepreneurs in the last year that spend in between 1.5 to at least two million dollars on an idea that goes nowhere like it, it's there's absolutely zero interest 
And it really breaks my heart because one of these entrepreneurs who spent the most money, it's over $2 million. Oh, wow. Um, it, the, the concept is very good. It's a very solid concept. But his execution, which means the way he executed that um, in an idea, is completely, it's, it's too hard. Like he's competing with established brands and you want to build another brand, which is, it's not impossible, but it's like the car company. So it, yeah. it's super, super hard. And, and there was there was a tweak to his concept. If you turned his concept into an accessory for other brands, that would have been a complete different story, but he was locked into his ways of thinking. Mm. And yeah, I don't exactly know where he's today, but he's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a sad story. Like that really breaks my heart. And that's, um, to give you a background while we started the DevReady podcast in the beginning, we had in 2019, it started, there were five founders that came to us, not as much money, but over a million dollars collectively, we worked out in the space of a week. And the first lady in our podcast was Judy Selman's. Um, she spent quite a, a lump of money trying to build a um, 400,000. Yeah, a marketing tool and really got nowhere and eventually got something out of it but probably really didn't get a return. Um, she was willing to come on and share a story and that's that was our first test pilot. Um, yeah. And then we kept going because it was just sharing how do we share these stories to help people mm. not make these types of um, mistakes. And one of the key things is talk to the market as early as you can. Um, and that's that's pivotal in terms of any product development, whether it's, it's software, hardware, or anything in between. Assess and evaluate, mm. really. Just yeah. Get something as quick as you can out to the market and see who's interested. Yeah. Even if it's just a visual prototype, you don't actually have to have the real thing functioning. Just is this going to work? Like in the case of hardware, it's does the shell is it ergonomic enough for you to hold or whatever it may be? Yeah, yeah. And we have tools today. Like, and again, you know, I started working thirty years ago. I remember doing um, a medical product, and, and the, the time to prototype and everything was so short that. I just went, I, I got some, um, how do you call that? Um, you know, the paste that the kids have that model things? The PVA or Play-Doh? Play Play-Doh, oh, Play yeah. yep. mm -hmm. I just went and took some Play-Doh and I did some kind of mocha with Play-Doh yeah. and then put that in the hand of surgeons and you know, just to see how does it feel? You know, there were three different shapes. It's like, and we got feedback like that. That wasn't perfect, but that was good enough. Uh, today we have a number of 3D printers and stuff like that, and we can be a bit more accurate and, you know, uh, but, um, but there's always a way like there's this, you know, I did plenty of prototype with cardboard and stuff like that, just to demonstrate a function or explain to people how a mechanism will work and how that would benefit, you know, the, the end user or stuff like that. So there's always a way that you can prototype, but I agree. Uh, as soon as you have an idea, try to put it out there. Sometimes in hardware because of ip that can be very tricky okay so there are ways to go around that uh and one way i can also advise is um talk about the problem you solve mm -hmm. which is very funny because when you ask um some entrepreneurs you know they came out all excited about ah oh, you know we have this new sub dispenser and this is fantastic and it's the next big thing after a sliced bread and it's going to be a big hit and you ask them what problem do you solve and say what do you mean it's like, <laughs> And yeah, it's uh, you could say, well, it's about soap dispensing. No, maybe there's something else. And you need to really understand what the problem is. Mm. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't really nail that. And, and you don't have to disclose anything. But you, if you just talk about, okay, 
we're trying to solve this problem of you know poorly uh, distributing soap in in you know in restrooms or whatever bathrooms uh, is that a problem that you're facing when you go to the restaurant and airport and other collective areas yes or no and if yes you know what type of experience do you have and try to nail that if you just talk about that that can give you a sense of how the market is and how big the market is so yeah that's that's another trick yeah we have a similar thing we say you have to solve the problem and not the symptom mm. otherwise you're just treating the symptom and it's never going to yeah. go away it's always there you're just working around it so yeah. it's always just trying to dive in to the problem behind the problem generally is the way to word it yeah yes yeah i think it's an interesting point though just to talk to um the problem just to share your to get insight not share your concept and i think um i think it's probably protects people a little bit if they're concerned about sharing their ideas too early because a lot of people are they feel yeah. like um they're the only one with your idea generally there's probably another 101 people with the same idea if not more given the planet that we're on and it's about who executes the best in the end um who markets the I best agree. who executes the best who sells a story the yeah. best sells a vision the best oh. that's generally who wins the outcome in a solving a particular problem yeah, I'm sure between the three of us, there's probably a several hundred uh, NDAs we've signed. Yes. Oh, okay. any of those problems. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so many. Yeah. And sometimes it's funny because you sign an NDA and people pitch their ideas like, duh. How do you Google that? Because I know it's like 10 products that are already covering that. <laughs> they're brilliant, aren't they? yeah. That's another key thing, just, just Googling the concept and seeing if something's available. A lot yeah, of people don't I, even do that. I know. It's, it, that's, yeah, that's mesmerizing. Um, for me, ideas, they are important because that's the base of, you know, it's not even a foundation. It's like, okay, thinking about the house that you're going to build, but it's all about the execution. And it's, it's exactly because I have a, I, like, I can have an idea of a soap dispenser. You can have an idea of a soap dispenser, but I'm going to execute that in a very different way than you will. Mm. And you're going to have two different companies, two different segments for two different markets and everything. So it's, it, yeah, it's extremely rare that you, you know, you you can be yeah some people steal idea that definitely happens but it's it's not that common because it's and especially in hardware it's so hard to put a product out there like yeah it's, uh, yeah I mean, unless you, the hardness the gold, is the, yeah, the, the expense the yeah. investment I think when people share so the main knowledge yeah the experience in knowing how to deliver part of that product as well mm -hmm. not just yeah yeah I think when people come and talk to people like us. Um, Yes, we signed an NDA. Um, they're concerned that we're going to steal their idea, but we're working on our own business, trying to do our own things, evolve our own components, and we don't even have the time to work on the ideas that we think could actually add some value. If you, if you know what I mean, Philip. So, yeah, I, I do. I still have yeah. people that are very suspicious yes. of designer thinking they're going to steal and and do. It's like I don't. Like, I don't care. Like, yeah. in, you know, yeah. I have my own ideas. If I need, if I have five minutes, yes. I work on my own yeah. stuff, like not yeah. yours. I got yeah. zero interest in that. Yeah. And I have ideas that I think have a bigger impact, a bigger market than yours. And, you know, it's not being disrespectful, but it's like, okay, I, I have a sense that I, you know, I could nail this one. So anyway. In the end, I think you're similar to our thinking. You love the idea, love helping people get mm. a solution that's actually going to be viable, um, hit the market yeah. and actually give a return. Can we talk a bit about the 
what's going on behind you? Because I'd love to understand how it all comes the together for you. Stool, the three-legged right? stools. So you got two parts. Explain those for us. Yeah, so that's kind of the technical part here. Um, the technical is just, okay, to design a product, what do you need? Well, you need to effectually design a product. So that's designed for function. I, you know, the example I say, if you need to design a teacup, it has to work like a teacup. Like it's as simple as that. And, and it sounds simple, but when you really think about it, we are talking about soap dispensers that don't do their job. It's like, well, it's simple, but a lot of products don't even go there. Like it's, you know, you have plenty of product out there that don't really work. Like from, you know, uh, knives that you have and, and stuff that don't you know, sharp enough and not whatever, and don't really do the job well to, you know, my example of the tap or the soap dispenser or you name it, you're going to find them. So it's really trying to find that time and do the necessary iteration and test and prototype to really dive into so that people can have the, the experience. Mm -hmm. So it's super important for me that people have a very good experience with your product. But again, the technicalities of the product is not enough. So after that, uh, as soon as you have something, could be rendering, could be ideas, sketches sometimes, um, if you have prototype, that's even better. You you engage with your market. Like my God, it's so important, and especially important in hardware. And I will tell you why. Um, you don't design a product for a thousand unit, ten thousand unit, a hundred thousand unit, or a million units in the same way. There are different technologies. There are different mold, different investment. There are so. If you think you're gonna get away with, uh, I don't know, a polyurethane mold and everything. Uh, because you thought low quantity and suddenly you're booming and you need to deliver, you know, 50,000 to your Amazon, you know, 3PL the, in, in the next weeks, you're done. You haven't designed for the right technology and that's the end of it. Interesting. So <laughs> you're really, and that, that, that's why you need to really engage with the market. It's not just because you want to talk to the guys. It's just because you need to assess how big is my market mm -hmm. and in hardware, it's super, super important. Like you really need to know, you know, you, you can design product for a few hundred, that's fine. Like it's more like artisan type of thing. Yeah. Um, you can scale artisanal, like Louis Vuitton is an expert in doing that, that but that's super hard. Um, and it took them like a few decades to do that. So it's not everyone, but it's possible, super hard. Um, but usually you have technology for different level of mass manufacturing. So you need to know with the market fit into what the market wants at what price point mm -hmm. and which technology do you place facing that so that you have the best possible outcome. And so that's the second step. The third step is business modeling. And I started business modeling with just the financial aspect. And you'd be surprised how so many, even businesses, founders and entrepreneurs have no idea about numbers. Like when I say no ideas, it's, it's so they will know, for example, the mass manufacturing price, mm -hmm. but the cost of acquisition of customer, which channel they're going to use, so very often they don't Quite have sure. an idea. Yes. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that at the beginning, and when you start, it's hard. I, I get that. Like I've been doing that for 30 years. It's hard. But you have an idea for, you know, you have industry benchmark, you have uh, competitors, and, and you, you, you can have a sense like, is the cost of acquisition like 5% or 25% of the retail price, for example? Makes a big like, difference, doesn't you... it? Yes. Exactly. And if you don't know, uh, you need to you know, pick a number and try to work your way out. But you can't go blind and say, okay, I think word of mouth will we, we'll be fine and we'll go with there. And it's, it's, you know, so 
But business modeling is more than that. It's also working on the value proposition. And that's also linked to marketing slash advertising and everything, but it's also linked to the business side. So you need to find what's your unique value proposition. How different are you from the competitors and which langu language you're going to communicate in order to deliver that value. And, uh, and that's super interesting too, because you, if you do that work, you can really disconnect from the financials, meaning that you can be in a market where people are super happy to pay something for 30 bucks and you have costs that cost you a dollar to manufacture, but the value proposition is still linked to the 30 bucks perception. So that's, you know, that's, that could be really, really interesting to work this, uh, this way around too. That's a good place to be, cost a dollar. <laughs> Thirty dollars yeah. to sell, but if your cost acquisition is fifty, there's a problem. Uh, mm. <laughs> so yes, very important to understand that piece, definitely. Mm. Yeah, got it. And then the other side, you got what's triple bottom line? Explain this one. To yeah. Me. yeah, yeah. So I, I've been working product design for thirty years now, and I've always been fascinated by the impact that we have when um, when we design a product. Uh, we have an impact on the client, like the, the company, their client, the end user and everything. And that's fantastic. But at large, we have an impact on the planet because of the material that we source and the end of life and what we do with them. And we have an impact on, on people like uh, literally the end user is one of them, but there are so many stakeholders that are involved. And the question is for me, how can I add some value to as much as possible, like all the stakeholders that I can see in that project? And, um, and it, has, it doesn't have to be a social enterprise or anything. It's just like, okay, th there could be ways to design a product that, that benefit from like the extended family that will be involved with that product. So for example, many years ago, I designed a, a machine and the machine was really designed for the end user. Um, the particular thing is that that machine was sold mainly in Asia and the, the end users were very often female workers. And so that, you know, they are not as tall as I am, for example. So you need to scale down the machine to make sure they are comfortable and the ergonomics are right. But we also discovered that one of the stakeholders was the maintenance people and the maintenance people, they were not involved with the machine every day. They will come every, you know, few weeks or something and they will have to tweak a number of things. So we designed a machine with a special door and all the, the technical components that were tweaked by the maintenance people who, the, the, all those components were at the front of the machine at the beginning. We put everything at the back so that the user doesn't have to touch anything. So that's a separation, but also the maintenance people suddenly they just open the door, they'll have a wall of stuff that controllers and stuff that they can, they can change. So that's one way to benefit. And then there are plenty of different levels and, and layers that you can play with, but that's the idea. The idea is to expand a bit, you know, the, the play. And understanding who's involved with the product from end to end. Like yeah. Key stakeholders yes. across the, every stakeholder. Yeah. I think when you're designing product is important to be mm. considered because yeah. it's a background story. We built a product, um, for a big corporate and that's where Devrity sort of came from. Devrity is about helping you design, get better product, involve stakeholders, mm -hmm. understand, um, get really clear on your, your concept, your idea, what's going to get you to a point where you've got an MVP in front of people to start testing, engaging. So, but we didn't do things that way back in the day. So when we, when it was a corporate client that came to us, I won't name names, but they went through the process. We built the product, we engaged with the stakeholders that were put in front of us. Um, 
that product got built over the course of what, six, eight months. Um, mm -hmm. They took it to a conference overseas, presented it, and there was pushback from one department mm -hmm. that was actually going to sell this thing. And then what that meant was this, this became shelfware. It got absolutely nowhere because that stakeholder is not engaged in the beginning. Um, and they pushed oh, yeah. back against the product concept because they thought it was going to impede on their it was going to impact their current marketplace um, yeah. and what they were doing, how they're operating. So it completely fell over. And the learning is engage every stakeholder and understand who they are because there could yeah. be some stakeholders that can actually block a product moving forward as well. Yeah, I won't share the name and everything, but I have similar stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're interesting insights. And you, that's something yeah. that we learn along the journey and you know, how do we engage all of them? Because yeah. you want everyone mm. on side, especially if there's a mm. part of the decision making process or the buy in process. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Especially for the buy in and getting that broader appeal mm. from the users who are actually going to use it or the ones that have to sell it to the users. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's important. Yes, very important yeah. stuff. So in terms of just that planet side, that can be a number of yeah. things, right? So they could be the type of material you use, how the product is dispensed of, how long it lasts, etc. Yeah. Um, what's some of the thinking in that area? Because it's important, especially with well, the physical product and plastics. Yeah. Obviously eating up every um, Yeah, plastic is a big one. And then, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing. So it's mm -hmm. super hard and people have a perception of what's green and it's not and everything. So that's a tough thing. So after 30 years of working in that field, the only thing I can say that um, there are no simple solutions. Like it's, you know, all the people that say, oh yeah, just send to bioplastics, like, no, please don't. Like it's, it just doesn't work. Um, so for example, many years ago, uh, we, we worked on a product and we considered um, uh, one of the available bioplastic at the time, which was corn. And, and so we did a study, we tried to see if corn based plastic was a good thing. And, uh, and turns out it's not. And the, the reason is that um, when you use corn, it's actually um, a water um, hungry plastic. So you need a lot of water to have a corn field. And, and then you transform this corn into plastic, which is fine. And then it's going to be biodegradable and everything, which is good, I guess, uh, depending on the lifespan, not always very good, but you know, I would say good. Um, but when you when you look at the impact, like how much water you take from the earth and everything, it's like, even if you don't pay that water, it doesn't make any sense. Like it's, it's, it's it, that wasn't a good choice. Yeah, interesting. Um, so it's, you know, the, I see a lot of products saying, oh, okay, well, we use this, you know, whatever, you know, compostable thing and it's, it's really cool and it's natural. And I'm like, yeah, is it like really like it's, you know, look at the broader, like from, end-to-end -end you know, delivery of the product, exactly. not just the, the phone really marketing side. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, and, and one of the products I've designed a few years ago is this one, this small um, cable management device called Cable Stop. Mm -hmm. And and I, I thought about bioplastic and other things, and and Cable Stop is, is made with ABS. And one of the reasons is that I know that with that shell, it's going to last at least 20 years, like no worries. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the life cycle, there are only two materials on that on that product, three parts, two material. And at the end of the life cycle, you just put the ABS back to you know the plastic chain, and it's it's very good plastic, can be chopped down and then reused as in injection molding. Um, and, and then the steel, it just go back to steel. So in you know, and and that was so much better than other bio-based plastic or more recyclable or recycled even plastics and everything, and. <clears throat> 
one of the reasons is that they, you know, I cannot guarantee with a bioplastic or recycled plastic that it's going to perform as well after 20 years. And I'd rather have a product that will last 20 years than five that will last less and, and that you need to churn over because that's over whatever 40 years of lifespan, that's the outcome is really not as good. Mm. So it's a complex thing. There's, and there's, yeah, it's. Hmm. No, it's of it's just the marketing spin to the consumers. As long as it seems good for them, then yeah. that's what matters. Yeah, and it's a sad story because that's where you got all these, um, you know, big brands jumping like even Volkswagen, you know, the scandal with the diesel in the US, it's, you know, because they put a leaf on the back of a diesel car <laughs> thinking, and it's actually kind of um, software that was managing the exhaust uh, just for the test. And like it's, you know, it's, it, that's where it leads. So that's, that's kind of sad. It's, um, but it's, it's very hard. And there's a lot, I think there's a lot to be said around education of the, the customer. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of greenwashing and, and, product that pretend to be green and when you really dive into it it's like well actually uh, we're better off with the other thing the original that it was yes it's a different spin mm. i think that was the case with like the first um electric car the toyota prius mm. the amount of waste that was used to create the batteries mm. yeah. to get in them into the first priuses was ridiculous compared to how much petrol was used in the lifetime of a vehicle yes yeah and there are stuff that it's, that's a good um, a good question. Like electric vehicles, that like you know, you know that the embodied energy to build an electric vehicle today is four times the energy to build a traditional vehicle. Yeah, that's a problem too, isn't it? Okay. Yes, yeah, and, yeah, and that's a massive thing. Yeah, yes. So they, they are, you know, they are, like people say, oh yeah, I can drive a Tesla. I'm green. And it's mm. like, well, yeah, you know, look at the lakes of pollution in Mongolia. That's where they extract most of the rare earth. Yes. Uh, in order to do that, you need some chemicals. They don't know how to get rid of the chemicals. So in Mongolia, they created those huge lakes mm -hmm. where they dump the chemicals. And that's a ticking bomb because, you know, some things will happen eventually, mm -hmm. like a little leak leech somewhere at some point. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we're going to have a huge environmental pollution. And we don't know how to scale that exactly or to treat that properly, or it's not included in the prices or, you know, so it's, yeah not always very obvious and i like to look at the, the whole picture to make sound decisions so that's that's the angle yep that's a good insight for people that are driving electric vehicles or considering buying one so <laughs> yes yeah philippe if anyone wants yeah. to learn like one of the things you talk about is transforming ideas into million dollar products and i think people that yeah. uh, have a concept that's got a physical component um would mm. do be well versed to have a conversation with you. How do they find out about out about you or D two Design Development? Where would they go? Um, I think one way to reach is uh, easy. It's on LinkedIn. Very often people approach me there. Um, I have a website that, that you find the address on LinkedIn too. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to know a bit the philosophy or what I do, I have a TEDx talk that is out there too. That gives a bit of a people, um, you know, who I am as a person. I would say. And, um, and I think that's, uh, yeah, that would be a good start to get to know, to know me. And I'm, I'm also happy to have a, a discussion on my website. I have a discovery call uh, button. So you just have to press that and, and you, you know, you have a, a calendar invitation, you find your, your time. And I'm ha always happy to help if I can, if I can in any way, shape or form. So, yeah. 
and I'll share it all out with the show notes, but d2melbourne.com.au, I believe, is the website um, yep. to reach out yep. to you and click that discovery call button. But um, we'll share it everything. And even the TED Talk, um, we'll share it along with the notes for the show notes. So thank you for joining us on DevReady Podcast. I think there's a lot more detail we could go in too. So I think uh, maybe a secondary follow-up could be very useful for Luke. So I really appreciate your time and coming on today. And uh, let's keep... Happy to do the follow-up too, and thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate that too. No, welcome. Thank you. No problem. Happy to have you on board, Philip. Thank you. Thanks.